It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Honorable, the Chief Justice and the Associate Justices of the Supreme Court of the United States. Oh, yay. Oh, yay. Oh, yay. The new Supreme Court term starts on Monday, with cases teed up on affirmative action, gay rights, elections, and the environment that could make this term as divisive as the last. The conservative majority has shown they're not afraid to upend precedent, so much so that liberal justice Elena Kagan expressed concern for the legitimacy of the court. If one judge dies or leaves a court and another judge comes in and all of a sudden the law changes on you, what does that say? You know, that just doesn't seem a lot like law if it can depend so much on which particular person is in the court. My guest is former United States Solicitor General Gregory Garr, a partner at Latham & Watkins. Greg, the court is going to hear two cases challenging affirmative action in college admissions. I know that you won a landmark case before the court in 2016, Fisher versus the University of Texas, which upheld the university's race-conscious admissions policy. These two cases, one against Harvard, a private university, and the other against the University of North Carolina, a public university, are brought by the same group, Students for Fair Admissions, who argue that the school's admissions processes discriminate against Asian Americans. Tell us about the issues here. So in 2016, in the Fisher case, the court narrowly upheld the University of Texas's consideration of race and its undergraduate admissions policy. And almost eight years or so before then, it had narrowly upheld Michigan's use of race in its holistic admissions policy at the undergraduate level. And so the court is reexamining this issue again in the context of two cases, one involving the oldest private college in America, Harvard, and the other involving the oldest public college in America, the University of North Carolina. And the private-public distinction is important because the public college raises the question of whether or not the consideration of race violates the 14th Amendment, and the private college raises the question of whether it violates Title 
six of the civil rights laws, which largely track the 14th Amendment standards. But these were very close cases when they were decided in Fisher in Michigan. And now the court has changed a great deal and it's considering it again. And the, the cases as presented to the court deal not only with the question of whether or not these particular plans are constitutional, but the plaintiffs in these cases have raised the bigger question of whether or not Fisher and Gruder should be overruled altogether. And that's by far the most important question in these cases and the most interesting thing to follow from the arguments is whether or not it appears that the court is poised to actually overrule these precedents or whether or not it would take a more narrow tack and perhaps simply apply the precedents and conclude that the universities had not met the standards applied in the other cases if they were to come out that way. The Supreme Court didn't have to take the case, meaning that there was no circuit split they had to resolve. And the Biden administration urged the justices to reject the challenge. That leads many to conclude that affirmative action is basically on the chopping block here. Right. And, you know, it's a tough case for the defenders of Harvard and University of North Carolina in this case for that reason. But, you know, all of that was true in 2016 when the court granted review in the Fisher case. And the court in that case ultimately upheld the constitutionality of the University of Texas's program. That doesn't mean that the court is going to reach the same decision today because it is a much different court. I think it will be difficult for the defenders of the policies in this case. So that's why I think it makes the real interesting question in this case whether or not the court would simply apply existing precedent and perhaps hold that these plans didn't do it the right way, or whether the court would go further and overrule the precedent altogether. And obviously, in the wake of the decisions last term, the prospect that the court would overrule precedent in this area would add to the debate that's ongoing in terms of where the court is today. There's one case that really seems to be drawing the lion's share of attention from political analysts, and some are calling it a threat to democracy. It's based on a controversial legal theory called the Independent State Legislature Doctrine that some say would reshape how federal elections are conducted by giving state legislatures the ultimate power to regulate federal elections. So this involves a North Carolina map Right. So this case involves a challenge in the state courts under the state constitution, alleging that a congressional map violated the state's partisan gerrymandering provision. And the state court invalidated the map on that basis and told the legislature to redraw a map. And the challengers in that case argued that that violated the federal constitutional provision on elections in the election clause, which says that the times, places, and manner of holding elections for senators and representatives shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof. And that's where this doctrine comes from, the argument that the United States Constitution requires the regulation of the time, places, and manner of holding elections for federal office to be done by the state legislature, not the state court. And so the question in this case is, did the state court, in applying the state constitution, overstep its bounds in requiring a new map? Was that only a matter for the state legislature to draw? But this is an issue that came up in the context of various balloting provisions during the past presidential election 
and the ruling in this case could govern future challenges, including the next presidential election. Are elections law experts right to be really concerned about this, to say that this would give state lawmakers the power over redistricting and election procedures, even if it results in partisan gerrymandering or violates state constitutions, and there'd be no review by the state courts? Well, the question is is which body of the state can make the ultimate decision about what the election rules should be, the the state courts or the state legislature, and does the U.S. Constitution require that decision be made by the state legislature with ultimate review to the U.S. Supreme Court in situations where there's a constitutional claim. So that's the matter that'll have to be resolved in this case. This case first came up for emergency review, and three justices, Alito, Thomas, and Gorsuch, would have granted North Carolina's application to restore the voting map drawn by the state legislature under this doctrine. Obviously, they got four votes to take the case. So might there be five votes for this really controversial doctrine? There could be, June, but I think the decision to grant review here, it's hard to say whether or not this was because there were four or five that thought that the state court had overstepped its bounds under the U.S. Constitution here, or whether or not the justices recognized that this was an issue that was presented in the last presidential election that's something that should be resolved one way or the other before we go through another election cycle. Okay, let's talk about redistricting. Merrill v. Milligan, Alabama's congressional map, about 27 percent of Alabama's residents are black, but there is only one majority black district out of seven in the state. So this is another election case, and the question in this case is vote dilution under the Voting Rights Act. And the allegation in this case is that the legislature has impermissibly diluted the black vote by splitting up black communities and drawing the congressional districts. And this is obviously an important and recurring issue in drawing districts across the country. And in some respects, it overlaps with the admissions cases in that, you know, all of these cases involve questions of how race can be used by government decision makers. And the Voting Rights Act is an area that this court has been fairly active in going back the past decade. And with the newly constituted court, there are a number of recent justices who've come onto the court before the last big voting rights case. This is an opportunity for the court to reexamine its precedents in this area and consider the proper role of race in adjudicating a vote dilution case under the Voting Rights Act. So in February, the court in a 5-4 to four vote put a hold on the lower court's order, which had required Alabama to redraw its map. And in her dissent, Justice Kagan said that accepting Alabama's contentions would rewrite decades of this court's precedent about the Voting Rights Act. I mean, if they did that, that wouldn't be particularly surprising considering what they've done to the Voting Rights Act even before the addition of the three Trump appointees. I mean, that's certainly true if you go back to the Shelby County case. It was one of the more contentious cases that the court has heard and decided in the last 10 years or so. And these are, you know, very divisive cases in which justices have strongly held views. So it won't be surprising if there are two different camps on this issue as to how the case comes out and, you know, what that means for the Section 2 doctrine going forward. We'll just have to wait and see. Coming up, former U.S. Solicitor General Gregory Garr and I will discuss an upcoming case case involving Andy Warhol and Prince. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? 
You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Supreme Court justices will be looking at a series of silkscreen portraits of musical icon prints created by artistic icon Andy Warhol. The series was based on a photograph by Lynn Goldsmith, who claims it was copyright infringement. Many people are thinking that the transformative part of the fair use law allows them to take our copywritten work and do whatever they want with it. This has got to stop. I've been talking about the upcoming Supreme Court term, which starts on Monday, with former U.S. Solicitor General Gregory Garr, a partner at Latham & Watkins. Greg, this case is going to draw a different audience to the Supreme Court arguments. So this is a really fascinating case, and I should disclose up front that my firm actually represents the Warhol Foundation in this case. But ultimately, the question in this case is, what is a transformative use for purposes of triggering the fair use defense under the Copyright Act? And it comes into play in this case where Andy Warhol took this photograph of Prince and made certain changes to it in terms of cropping it and altering the photo in various ways to produce what is now, I think, an iconic image of Prince. And the question is whether or not Andy Warhol's changes were sufficiently transformative to trigger the fair use doctrine, which is a defense to copyright, or if not, that effectively makes Andy Warhol a copyright violator. This case has huge implications for the art world, for museums, for publishers, and it's also just a a really 
really fascinating case. For those who aren't, you know, maybe as enmeshed in the legal doctrine, this would be an interesting case to follow just because of the arguments on both sides and the popular interest in the case. There's a case that touches on free speech, religious rights, and gay rights. A website designer in Colorado refused to start creating pages for same-sex weddings because she said doing so would be at odds with her faith. And this is really similar to the 2018 case involving the Colorado baker. Right, exactly. So in Masterpiece Cake Shop, which is a 2018 case, the court held that Colorado could not force through its public accommodations law a baker to make a cake for a same-sex wedding. But the court decided that case on fairly narrow grounds that there was a basis in the record to believe that the Colorado authorities had acted with religious animus. So the issue is back to the court in the context of this 303 creative case, which deals with a website designer who doesn't wish to make her services available for same-sex weddings. And the way in which this case is different is her theory is based on a broader First Amendment theory that her web design is protected speech. And in fact, the Colorado law prevents her from making certain disclosures on her website about who she'll serve and why she wouldn't serve particular people implicating First Amendment interests. So what's interesting about this case is it presents the masterpiece cake shop question in the broad sense in the First Amendment context, which could have potentially broad implications for how to think about and enforce these public accommodations laws. As you say, it doesn't directly involve religious rights, but peripherally. And I can't remember the last time the Roberts Court ruled against claims that involved religious rights. I mean, this is definitely an area where those challenging restrictions on religious rights have fared well before the court. And I think, you know, going into the argument, one would think that the challengers here would certainly have some justices who'd be sympathetic. But this is an extremely complex constitutional question about the interplay between the First Amendment and public accommodations law that the court has struggled with and sort of danced around for a long time. So in terms of how the case comes out and ultimately the doctrinal lines that are drawn, I think that's very much up in the air. The court is going to hear an environmental case on the first day. It involves the Clean Water Act. I'll let you take it from here because the Clean Water Act... Complex stuff. Yes. Right. So the the plaintiffs in this case have been battling with the EPA for 15 years in an effort to build their dream home on a parcel of land in Idaho. The case actually went before the Supreme Court a while back on the question of whether they could go to federal court to challenge the EPA's permitting process, and they succeeded in that. But then EPA ultimately found that there was water on the parcel that implicated the Clean Water Act. And so now they're back arguing about sort of the jurisdictional nexus when there is some body of water, however small, on one's property to actually trigger the Federal Clean Water Act. And this then raises the question of what is the proper definition of waters of the United States? And administrations have gone back and forth over the last decade or more about how broad or narrowly that definition should be written. And the Supreme Court has divided on that in prior cases as well. So this is another opportunity for the court to revisit that issue. And it is one, as I say, that the court has struggled with before. So it'll be interesting if they can come to a resolution on it in this case. Yeah. In light of the court's decision last year that curtailed the EPA's ability to fight climate change, many environmental experts think that the best case scenario for environmentalists 
would be that the court embraces the narrow reading of the Clean Water Act that was proposed by the late Justice Antonin Scalia. That certainly is is one of the possibilities for the court in terms of of outcome. Justice Scalia had proposed a test and ultimately only got, I think, three other votes for his test. So there was a plurality decision in that case, and his rule didn't control. So, I mean, there's certainly broader administrative doctrines, including the major questions doctrine, which came out of the West Virginia case last year that could have implications here. So in that respect, that may be right, that they ultimately would be best off with the standard that Justice Scalia had proposed. I know you're arguing a case, SEC v. Cochran. Tell us about that. Right. So SEC versus Cochran is a case that, along with the TAN case, presents the, the general question of whether someone who's enmeshed in proceedings before an agency, in our case, we represent a woman who was alleged to engage in certain county violations and was sued by the SEC before one of their in-house judges, whether they they can go to a federal district court and argue that the administrative decision maker is unconstitutional because that decision maker is unconstitutionally insulated from removal by the president, or whether that person instead has to sort of endure um, what can oftentimes be very lengthy, costly, and burdensome administrative proceedings, and only then go to a federal court in review of the agency order and challenge the constitutionality of the decision maker. So this case is enormous consequence for the many individuals or companies that are enmeshed in agency proceedings and presents a a basic question of the federal jurisdiction and the ability to go to federal court to challenge unconstitutional agency action. It seems like you have a good argument here because of past decisions by the Supreme Court or recent decision by the Supreme Court. We hope we do, June. Um, you know, certainly the court has been more skeptical of administrative overreach here, and we do think that there are problems raised by the the current scheme. But you know, even more than that, we think this is a, a, a basic statutory question that Congress granted federal district courts broad jurisdiction under the federal question statute, and never took that away, including with respect to agency proceedings here. I want to ask you a broad question. Polls show that public approval of the court is at historic lows after last term, where the court overturned Roe v. Wade. The repercussions of that are playing out across the country. It threw out New York's century-old gun control law, expanding gun rights, and it further blurred the separation between church and state. So the six conservatives show that they're not afraid to upend precedent. If the court continues along this path making changes to the law on controversial issues that affect society and doing it by either six to three or five to four votes. What will the effect be on the court as an institution? Well, obviously, this is a very important issue, and, you know, this is all still unfolding. The fact that the justices have been out there, at least some of them speaking about this publicly, is interesting. The court announced just the other day that it was reopening to the public for arguments, but it otherwise remains closed to the public, indicating that we're we're not fully back to normal. And I think, you know, all of this is going to shake out in ways that we're going to have to follow. I mean, this term itself presents many blockbuster cases. There are opportunities for the court to revisit precedent or decide cases narrowly. And if you look at the affirmative action cases in particular, that's one to follow early on in the term in terms of whether the court seems to be, you know, swinging broadly or perhaps focusing more narrowly. And we'll have to see how this plays out and, you know, whether the dust will ultimately settle over the course of the term. But it's 
it's something that the court and the country will will have to work through. And, and this term, of course, we also have a new justice, Justice Jackson. She is unlikely to change the basic ideological divide in the court. But as the saying goes, you know, every new justice brings a new court. So we'll have to see how that plays out. Thanks so much for your insights, Greg. That's former United States Solicitor General Gregory Garr, a partner at Latham & Watkins. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And please join us for the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CutterEconomicForum.com.